0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime talk by Dr. Natalia Murray, which explores how visual art was used to propagate revolutionary and communist ideas in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. Natalia is an associate lecturer in 19th and 20th century Russian art and a freelance curator. Before being awarded a PhD at the Courtauld Institute of Art, Natalia read History of Art at the Academy of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg and completed the PhD course at the Hermitage Museum. In 2012, she wrote the book The Unsung Hero of Russian Avant-Garde, The Life and Times of Nikolai Punin. Together with curator Anne Dumas and the honorary professor in Russian art at Courtauld, John Milner, Natalia co-curated the revolution Um, Russian art exhibition currently on display in our main galleries here. Natalia currently works as the Head of Education and Public Programs at the Gallery for Russian Art and Design, curating exhibitions of Russian art in England, and she's now currently editing her next book on post-revolutionary festivals in Petrograd. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Natalia Murray.
1: Thank you for the introduction. Today we will try to answer the question if um, revolution was more useful to art or art to revolution. uh, It doesn't have a straightforward answer, but hopefully it will be a bit clearer in the end of the uh, talk. so, first of all, it's important to say that um, victory on the art front um, may be probably the, one of the most substantial elements of the Bolshevik victory. Uh, most artists, writers, and musicians greeted the idea of revolution, um, uh, and they saw that it, um, it would bring them uh, freedom, uh, and uh, they will be able to finally um, do whatever they want to do and uh, express themselves fully. And uh, in his article for the Royal Academy magazine uh, back in the USSR, Martin Sixsmith compared artist romance with the revolution with the love affair, the journey from the initial useful passion that overwhelms caution and sense and which would lift artists to the heights of creation, followed by love's trials, the niggling suspicions and the dawn of mistrust. When doubts surfaced about the purity of their love objects, they forced themselves to suppress them. When the faults of the regime became manifest, they looked away. In the end, the revolution turned against them. So I think it's quite a good comparison between um, romance of artists with the revolution and the love affair, because that's, in the end, what what happened. Um, So the love affair, which started so well, in the end... um, Uh, finished with sort of betrayal of um, uh, the Soviet government of the artist. Um, But let's start from the beginning. Um, The abrupt and radical changes, both political and ideological, that took place in Russia following the October Revolution, of course led to collapse of existing cultural infrastructure so uh, the first revolutionary years were dominated by avant-garde artists who gathered around minister of public enlightenment or minister of um, public education anatoly lunacharsky whom you can see on this beautiful portrait which unfortunately didn't quite fit into our exhibition um, but i would like to show it to you today Um, anatoly lunacharsky was um, a very well educated man he spent most of his life Uh, outside Russia before the revolution. Um, He used to live in Paris and uh, take workers around Louvre um, uh, because he thought that art was very important for education of workers. Um, he studied in Sorbonne, he spoke at least five languages. He was a very erudite man. But the real problem was that, uh, because he lived outside of Russia before the revolution, uh, artists didn't really know him very well. So when he was sent back to Russia in a sealed train, together with Lenin, uh, arriving in April 1917, um, everyone was saying, well, who on earth is this guy, really? And um, most established artists didn't want to uh, help him to establish art of the new Russia after the revolution, because they thought that it was just a bunch of hooligans who will disappear quickly. Um, Instead, it was Russian avant-garde artists who gathered around Lunacharsky, and they thought that uh, finally all their wishes would come true, and they believed that new country New Russia needed new art. So they saw that you couldn't um, build new culture on the basis of old um, academic art. Um, so in this uh, photograph you can see uh, Nikolai Punin, um, sort of pretty much in the middle, um, who was uh, right hand of Lunacharsky and uh, who was trying to interpret avant-garde art to rather old-fashioned Um, Minister of Education because uh, Lunacharsky as well as Lenin had quite sort of old-fashioned views on art. Um, So even though Lunacharsky was a cosmopolitan and well-educated man and his views on art were uh, much more broad-minded than those of Lenin, um, even he had described Kandinsky in 1911 as a man obviously in the final stage of psychic degeneration. (laughs) who scrolls some lines with the first paints that come to hand, and signs them the wretch, Moscow, Winter, and even St. George. So here you can see St. George. Uh, Lunacharsky simply couldn't understand how Kandinsky had ever been allowed to exhibit, so he thought he was really a mentally sick person. Um, And it's interesting that um, Kandinsky moved uh, back to Russia from Germany, in the beginning of First World War in 1914. um, And because he lived in Germany for a while, and that's where his abstract art was really shaped, uh, he wrote, um, of the 16 years that I have been living in Germany, I had given myself entirely to the German art world. How am I now suddenly supposed not to feel myself a foreigner? So when he moved back to Russia, he was already 50 years old, and he was starting a new life. Um, He was also um, son of a wealthy tea merchant. He had the whole sort of property portfolio all around Moscow. And of course, after the revolution, uh, most of this property has been nationalized. So his family lost pretty much everything. Also, he had this dream of building a big studio in the middle of Moscow, And of course, again, after the revolution, he didn't have means to do so. So he hardly painted, and we managed to include in the exhibition two of his paintings of this period, uh, which are actually quite rare, because instead uh, he dedicated himself to teaching new art to workers, um, uh, young champions of um, Russia, new Russia. Um, He also used to publish uh, um, articles, he gave lectures. Uh, He managed to publish his autobiography called Steps, which was quite a feat in uh, starving Russia during the civil war. Um, uh, This book apparently included 25 reproductions uh, from Kandinsky's paintings from 1902-1917, which was really an amazing achievement at the time of paper shortages. Um, in this book, um, Kandinsky announced himself to be inventor of obstruction, Uh, which, as we know now, is not quite true, Um, but at the time, everybody believed him, of course. Um, He also became one of the founders of the new Moscow Institute of Artistic Culture, also called Inhuk, which strove to determine the course of artistic experiment in post-revolutionary Russia. Um, But... Kandinsky's romance with the revolution didn't last very long and in 1921 he was invited to teach at Bauhaus in Germany and he left Russia. He never came back. Um, Young artists who stayed behind were actually quite relieved to see him go um, because um, Kandinsky always propagated this kind of spiritual in art which for young avant-garde artists already seemed to be quite old-fashioned because most of them were materialist, also they were constructivist and they wanted not just to paint beautiful abstract works, they wanted to construct their works. And one of the young um, artists who worked in Russia at the time was Lyubov Papova, who used to paint on plywood because for her... um, again, constructing works and material was very important. So when you look at this painting in our exhibition, you will see that uh, she deliberately wouldn't cover all the plywood in the background because it was an important part of the composition. Um, But there is also an interesting story attached to this painting, Uh, both of her paintings at our exhibition, actually. Um, Because she painted on plywood, um, when, avant-garde in 1930s was announced to be a bad influence on young people and was mainly sort of hidden away. Um, Her paintings were inherited by her brother and most people would never have seen them till at least 1970s. Um, This wonderful collector George Kostakis, um, who started collecting Russian avant-garde before most Uh, other collectors in 1960s, he found Popova's brother. Popova died already in 1925, so she died quite young, but her brother was still around. Um, He tried to buy some works from him, but he said, no, actually the best works are in the country house. So um, Kostakis went there, so here is Kostakis in his apartment with these paintings. Um, He went to the country house uh, only to uh, first see that one of uh, Papova's plywood paintings was used to hold the washing basin. And it even when it was worse when he came out into the garden and noticed that um, this beautiful painting, which you see in our exhibition, uh, was used instead of one of the windows in the garden shed, uh, because apparently they couldn't find window big enough, but it was a very conveniently large piece of plywood. <laughs> Um, so he wanted, of course, to buy it from them, and they said, no, no, we won't be able to find such a big plywood anywhere else. So he rushed to Moscow, found replacement plywood, and exchanged it. Of course, now this painting would be worth several million pounds. It was quite a clever move. Um, George Kostakis was collecting all these works in quite a small flat in, uh, Moscow. Uh, and then when he was, um pretty much thrown out of Soviet Union in the 70s, he was also forced to leave most part of his collection uh, in Moscow um, and give it to the Tretikov Gallery, where you find all of these works now. Um, There was a similar situation with another avant-garde artist, um, Ivan Klun who was one of uh, Malevich's students, and um, he was also um, quite popular in 1920s and then deliberately forgotten later. Um, With Kloon it was sort of similar situation because um, uh, when he moved out of Moscow early in the Second World War, he left his works in the care of his lodger. And uh, finding herself short of space, uh, she used to put Klün's work outside um, the house, and uh, local children would use them to build tree houses and stuff like this. So uh, not many of them have survived. Um, but uh, one of these works that was in Kastakis' collection, when he took it to conservators, um, they discovered that because it was done on quite sort of thick cardboard, between the layers of cardboard, Kloon had hidden some Tsari's banknotes uh, because he obviously thought that they could still be useful one day. So you never know what you may find in Russian Orthodox paintings, you know, lots of surprises um, beheld. Um, so, But what was important after the revolution, that art came out into the streets, and um, roster windows, or satirical roster windows, um, were these stencil-replicated propaganda posters created by artists and poets uh, under the supervision of uh, Chief Committee of Political Education. They were created mainly between 1919 and 1921, and they were displayed in the windows of the telegraph agency. Uh, that's why they're called Rost, so against them. Um, um, and they were usually um, displayed in windows, that's why they're called Uh, windows, um, roster windows, and it was, of course, very direct form of propaganda because it was quite difficult to bring workers to see paintings in the museums, but, of course, they couldn't avoid seeing these posters in the windows going past them. And, again, in our exhibition, you will see some of these um, wonderful works. Um, Some of them were more sort of uh, non-figurative than others, Uh, but uh, they were very popular form of propaganda after the revolution. Um, so a totally new society um, could hardly be offered old art, um, and this and the fact that most established artists would be seen to belong to the bourgeois intelligentsia allowed avant-garde free reign after the October Revolution. So for the first few years it was mainly avant-garde artists who were not only creating new paintings, but also posters, um, agitational textiles, they called, Um, and um, they were also designing fashion for workers. So they were trying to transform all walks of life, uh, change architecture, change the way people lived, the way people dressed, the way people thought, of course, um, through propaganda. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, even though um, avant-garde artists were very important at the time, uh, Lenin found it quite hard to relate to this art. And in April 1918, he announced a so-called plan for monumental propaganda. Uh, And uh, two main... Parts of this plan were monuments to the new heroes of the revolution. And at the time, they didn't have many Russian heroes of the revolution. So they borrowed quite a few heroes from Italy, Germany, France. So they were monuments to Robespierre and so on and so forth. Um, and um, this was one of the sort of first um, uh, memorial plaques, which was part of this Uh, Lenin's plan for uh, monumental propaganda and um, apparently it was officially opened on the day of the first anniversary of the revolution and at the opening ceremony an old lady kept asking to which saint is this icon dedicated and the sculptor replied she's called revolution Uh, the old lady said I never heard of this one (laughs) so the reply was you'd better remember it so that was sort of how they tried to disseminate the ideas. But of course, here you can see that still um, the allegorical language of the French Revolution is used. Um, they also managed to demolish quite a few monuments, uh, Tsarist monuments, and this brilliant um, Eisenstein's film... Um, shows the moment of demolition of the monument to Alexander II. The first monument which was destroyed was the memorial cross erected on a place where the great duke, uh, Sergei Alexandrovich, was murdered. And apparently on 1st of May 1918, Lenin himself participated in its demolition. So it was kind of symbolical gesture as well and also of course at the time of civil war and food shortages shortages of electricity they didn't really have money to erect lots of new monuments and even the ones they did they were made of temporary materials so usually gypsum and wood so they haven't survived for very long just a few months usually so um By the first anniversary of the revolution, only nine monuments had been erected instead of the 40 promised. Um, And often uh, they quite cleverly used uh, the old uh, Tsarist monuments uh, and transferred them to the new kind of propaganda. So here you can see Romanov Obelisk, where names of Russian Tsars were replaced by names of 19 revolutionaries from all over the world. So it was quite interesting kind of rewriting history, replacing Tsars with revolutionaries. Um, And um, the list was uh, compiled by Lenin himself, But it's even more interesting that in 2013, the revolutionary obelisk was replaced by the replica of the pre-revolutionary one. And the Tsars were resurrected and revolutionaries taken off. So it's quite interesting how um, in this sort of um, hundred years, uh, the history has been rewritten several times. And they still keep the obelisk because it's, you know, it's granite, it's good to (laughs) reuse it. So it's quite a good example of recycling history. Um, this was uh, the, the first monument in the fulfillment of Lenin's plan. Uh, it was buzzed, uh to 18th century Russian author and social critic who was arrested and exiled at the time of Catherine II, um, Alexander Adychev. And uh, it was placed in a symbolic hall made by revolutionaries in the fence around the Winter Palace in Petrograd, and also replica was uh, placed in Moscow. Um, and um, apparently already in January 1919, uh, the Red Guard who was looking after Radishiv bust reported, I would like to report to the superintendent that today, during my duty at 5 a.m., the monument to the comrade Radishiv on the corner of the uh, former Winter Palace uh, fell down and broke into pieces. So as I mentioned before, the usually survive for just a few months. Um, In Moscow, it managed to survive for almost 20 years, but similar busts were often uh, stolen by hairdressers and used to display wigs in their windows. Um, So they could be quite useful, these monuments, even if they're really quite poor artistic quality. so uh, here is monument to Garibaldi. As I mentioned, they were not all Russian heroes. Um, altogether, between 1918 and 1920, 25 monuments were put up in Moscow and 15 in Petrograd. Um, and apart from easy re- to relate to realistic monuments, uh, a few more sort of symbolic cubist uh, sculptures were made as part of the same plan of monumental propaganda. And when you come to the first room of our exhibition, you see Muchina's sculpture with this torch of the revolution. It was also supposed to be part of Lenin's plan for monumental propaganda. It was never actually realized because it was too cubists, and Lenin couldn't quite understand what it was about. Um, This one also... Uh, was kind of built but never even open to the public because apparently Moscow um, cab drivers uh, said that it was carrying horses (laughs) Um, and people couldn't quite understand it and they found it too peculiar and too allegorical Um, so it was removed and destroyed even before the scaffolding was taken down completely. this this is quite a funny story, so I wanted to tell you about it. I'm sorry about quite poor quality picture, but it's the best one can find. Um, uh, this uh, monument called Liberated Labour... It was um, erected in this um, island, Kristovsky Island in uh, Petrograd, which was the name of St. Petersburg at the time. It was the place where a lot of aristocrats in St. Petersburg used to have their duchess. It's a nice sort of part of St. Petersburg, where now a lot of um, new Russians live. and uh, after the revolution, they decided to give these beautiful mansions to the workers, of course, as their recreation houses. And uh, Bloch was commissioned to build this um, figure to liberated labor um, at the entrance to this island. And of course, he wanted it to be much bigger than Michelangelo's David. It was very important that it's bigger, better, <laughs> everything was supposed to be the best in the Soviet Union. Um, So he uh, erected this huge monument, and when um, uh, the committee came to check it before opening it to, to the public, they discovered that he was completely naked. And, of course, nudity wasn't really um, welcome in Soviet Union. Um, so they told him that uh, within a couple hours before the public opening, he had to find a bit of plywood, hopefully not Papova's painting, and cover, cover him up. So that's what you can see here, um, this enormous um, liberated labor monument with covered up um, bits Um, with plywood. Then they also kind of got rid of it quite quickly. But workers quite enjoyed it. You can see them all gathering sort of around it. Um, Another part uh, of Lenin's plan for monumental propaganda was decoration of um, streets and squares of all the major Russian cities. Um, And um, Workers, soldiers, sailors, and representatives of Soviet republics proudly carried these colorful banners as well, um, adorned with slogans, um, and also professional attributes. So here on one of the banners you can see bread and ham, which was food industry workers' union. Um, So just as icons for churches had communicated religious messages to the illiterate, banners were intended to communicate revolutionary messages in a clear and intelligible way. and uh, buildings uh, provided quite a challenge, in, especially in, in St. Petersburg then Petrograd, because of course they were mainly um, aristocratic palaces and it would be logical to destroy them. But, um, well, first there was sort of a quite good committee for preservation of palaces, which was quite active after the revolution. And they managed to preserve most buildings in the center of St. Petersburg. But uh, instead they decided to come up with this compromise covering the facades with um, uh, banners and um, panels which represented new, often avant-garde art. So here you can see a former Mariinsky Palace in the middle of St. Petersburg. If you've been to St. Petersburg, you will recognize that St. Isaac's is just here. Um, And it's covered with these works of avant-garde artists. and uh, Nathan Altman was entrusted with decorations of the Palace Square, the main square of St. Petersburg, um, where revolution supposedly happened. Um, uh, and uh, he produced this quite sort of cubist decoration. So he surrounded the column in the middle of the square with this kind of revolutionary flames, which was symbolized by cubes. Um, he also. Um, covered the facades with the posters, and because it was November and there were no leaves on the trees, he came up with this plywood structure to make it a bit more jolly and green. And it says on it, uh, proletariat of the world unite. Um, And Altman apparently explained that um, uh, he closed his eyes on the architecture for the sake of creation of festive, cheerful, rebellious, and revolutionary mood. Unusual colours which were introduced to the city decoration by Altman for the first time were haunting imagination and inspired an emotional boost. Um, They were quite well received, but of course... Nobody could quite understand the message in Altman's propaganda. And uh, you may notice that in one of the rooms at our exhibition, which is dedicated to Brave New World, we try to reconstruct the shapes that Altman used to connect buildings in the palace square. So we also have this half circle and triangle in uh, one of the rooms at the exhibition. Um, also, so here are some... Um, of Altman's posters on the facade of the Winter Palace Um, and uh, all the main route of the demonstration was also decorated by avant-garde artists. So here are just some examples of the decorations. And um, it's even more difficult to imagine that um, in Vitebsk, where um, Chagall was Commissar of the Arts, Um, He also used his beautiful paintings, one of which also can be seen in our exhibition. Um, He used the version of this painting to decorate procession route in Vitebsk, And um, it's quite hard to really imagine this quite sort of intimate depiction of him and his beloved wife, Bella, decorating the route of the demonstration. And um, you can see here, a version of this painting which was hung on the building of the bank and it was called Greetings to Lunacharsky. They were waiting for Lunacharsky to come to vityebsk So he used his painting with Bella to, to decorate the route of the demonstration. Uh, this painting was used as well to decorate another big building in the middle of the city. Um, but of course you can imagine that uh, As beautiful as these paintings are, they were not really very useful as form of um propaganda painting and uh, decoration of buildings. Uh, so when Malevich came to Vitibsk in 1920, uh, very soon uh, most of Chagall's students moved to Malevich's workshop. Uh, Malevich created a new group of artists called Unovis, which is abbreviation for Establishers of the New Art. And he wanted to create a new man um, And he gathered around him students aged between 16 and 18 who were eager to design new forms of the world as the sign of suprematism, which was Malevich's style. Uh, Back in 1910, Malevich wrote, I'm the alpha of everything, for worlds are created in my consciousness. He regarded himself as a messiah proclaiming the good news of suprematism. And he built the relationship with his student uh, after those of Christ and the apostles. And students often uh, used to wear his black square on sleeves. And they would sign their paintings with little black square as well. And uh, you know um, Malevich's student Nikolai Sujetin by his beautiful porcelain, some of which you can also see at the exhibition. Um, So when Malevich arrived to Vitebsk, his workshop was very popular with students, and they also used to decorate um, houses and even trams in Vitebsk. So you can see that um, this form of propaganda was probably uh, still not very... uh, eligible, but at least brighter and much better for monumental art than Chagall's beautiful paintings. So here are just some examples of how Malevich and his students used to decorate buildings in Vitibsk. Um, And at the same time in Petrograd, um, on 3rd of March, 1921, several artists founded their own museum of contemporary art. Uh, which was the first uh, museum of contemporary art in the world. It was the first to open and the first to be closed down, <laughs> as often happens in Russia. So it was opened in 1921 and it was closed down already in 1926, but it was long before any other museums of contemporary art in the world. The next one would be MoMA, which was open in 1929 and Pompidou Center was open after the Second World War, and we all know when Tate Modern was opened. <laughs> we still remember it, even. Um, so it was really revolutionary to have museum of contemporary art, and it was, um, again, Punin's initiative And when Malevich came back from Vitebsk with his students, he became museum's director. Malevich would never go for anything less than director, by the way, he was this sort of person. He thought he was the most important artist on earth, probably, Um, he probably was at the time. Um, And then they they founded this Institute of Artistic Culture with museum uh, as its base. And here you can see Punin with other artists and Malevich. Um, in this um, Institute of Artistic Culture. Um, so they, they started laws of visual perception, and uh, they tried to kind of find out what turns um, the artist from the realist into the impressionist and from impressionist into cubist. Um, so here Malevich was working with uh, another giant of Russian avant-garde, um, Vladimir Tatlin, who also worked at the museum, and they were jealous rivals, and rather inconveniently, uh, they lived opposite each other in the, sort of the same building as the museum, and um, Tatlin at one point was burning all his works because he thought that Malevich was spying on him and getting his ideas, so it, was, it wasn't it was very uh harmonious relationship, but they were both sort of giants of uh, artistic development in Russia after the revolution. And um, you probably have seen a model of Tatlin's Tower at the courtyard of the Royal Academy a few years ago. Um, So it became the most uh, famous work by Uh, Tatlin, Uh, it uh, was supposed to be 400 meters tall, which would have dwarfed the Eiffel Tower, which was also quite important. It was never built. If it would have been built, it would look like that. Um, Of course, much taller than any other building in the center of St. Petersburg. And uh, we are quite conservative in St. Petersburg, so we don't like this stuff. (laughs) So as a result, it remained a model. But it became a real symbol of the revolution. And uh, in all the sort of, again, festive processions, they used to carry the model of this tower through Petrograd as a symbol of the revolution. Um, So it was uh, made of steel, glass, and revolution. Um, uh, Also, Tatlin was quite a dreamer, and he felt that soon people would learn to fly. Um, He said that children should be able to fly by the age of eight. Um, and in 1930s he designed this amazing versatile machine, his glider um, he was, it was called Litatlin, uh, Litatin in Russian is to fly and Tatlin is his name so the, the name of the machine became Litatlin it was based on a wingspan of um, albatross birds and obviously he was influenced by Leonardo da Vinci as well uh, but um, it was kind of flying bicycle so it was uh, designed at the time when um, Soviet aviation was reaching great um, success and uh, the biggest airplanes were produced in Soviet Union and at the same time Tatlin was dreaming of this simple um, flying bicycle which every worker would be able to have in their courtyard so they could fly to factories. Um, And so it it had to be affordable, it wouldn't need an engine or uh, fuel, so you would have um, free, um, ecologically... um, friendly machine. Unfortunately, it never flew. <laughs> it did take off once when his um, assistants were carrying it. Um, they were sort of coming on two bicycles, carrying it between them uh, to field trials, and they turned around the corner and it did take off, but only for a few minutes. So that's as far as it went. But I'm very glad that we could include the version of, uh, well, reproduction of Litatlin in our exhibition, and it's wonderful to see it flying around the Ratonde. Um, I'm sure Tatlin would have enjoyed it. Um, there was another artist who still remains almost completely unknown in the West, and again I'm very pleased that we managed to include some of his paintings in our exhibition. His name is Pavel Filonov. Um, he Um, invented this style called analytical realism in opposition to uh, Picasso's analytical cubism. Uh, He used to uh, paint with tiny little brushes um, and it was important for him that every um, inch of the painting is filled with paint. Um, So he he said that paintings develop like um, human body uh, and every atom had to be Um, painted. Um, And unlike Kandinsky and his compositions, uh, Filonov used to call his paintings formulas. So he produced formula of Petrograd proletariat, formula of spring, formula of Nicholas II, formula of space. Um, And um, this beautiful painting what uh, what it tries to depict is that proletariat is a sort of collective working class and it's made from many different fragments which hang suspended in different sort of axes of rotation. So here you can see spinning wheels of machinery with details of signs and figures suspended in this kind of mechanical world. Um, There are also glimpses of sky which uh, emerge from the visually chaotic background and are houses and towers appear to be at the point of collapse, or perhaps rebirth. Um, there is this soft blue um, and sometimes white kind of spiritual light, um, which um, comes from the sort of top of the painting, as though um, there is a religious figure in um, some more sort of uh, realistic academic painting. So the shapes of ghostly figures and heads turned to look upwards add to this feeling of worship to unseen higher power. So it's this um, higher power which you can't see, but all the workers are kind of praying to it and praising it. Um, So it's power of the revolution, of course. Um, This painting is uh, as close as Filonov ever came to almost total obstruction. It's called Formula of Spring, And it was influenced by aerial photography, which was first used during the First World War. And Filonov actually fought in the First World War, and he knew about aerial photography. And it very much influenced not just Filonov, but also Malevich, uh, who invented suprematism with these uh, shapes floating in space. So it was a real uh, eye-opener for a lot of avant-garde artists. And... um, they uh, suddenly could see us from above. So it was kind of God's uh, view of us, And that's exactly what Malevich is trying to show in this painting, which again you can see in our exhibition. Um, and when you know that it's connected with aerial photography, you look at it from a different um, perspective Um, he also had the biggest group of followers Um, he had 70 uh, young artists who were his students and they formed this group called my masters of analytical art Um, and um, Filonov was um, he was quite a dreamer he refused to sell any works to foreign collectors um, he believed that all his works should stay in Russia and form this museum of world-flourishing. Um, so uh, his wife, he mainly lived on his wife's pension, um, and at one point uh, his wife was writing that at the time when he refused to sell his works to American collector, I was patching up the last pair of his trousers. So he was this kind of saint of Bolshevik Russia. He hardly ate anything. He was painting 14 hours a day. And, of course, uh, by 1930s, nobody needed his art anymore. And he tried to... um, go for compromise, and he tried to paint workers at putila factory. But, um, you know, artists like Filona found it difficult to lie. So it's still not a positive, exciting vision of workers at the factory. All these workers look like robots. They look pretty much like the tractors that they're creating. And uh, he also painted Portrait of Stalin in 1936. Um, which, of course, was immediately rejected uh, because, again, Stalin here is not um, kind father of humanity. He is quite vicious and his eyes have all this sort of horror that um, he inflicted on people already by 1936. It was, you know, mass arrests and um, atrocities that followed. Um, but nevertheless, Filonov painted in his favorite style um, of analytical. Uh, realism. Even in 1940, uh, he just couldn't sell his work. Um, so uh, when avant-garde was prohibited, um, you could still paint in this style, but you had to um, live on your wife's pension. Nobody would buy your work, so it it wasn't kind of you. You were allowed to do what you wanted as long as you wouldn't exhibit it. And Filonov's uh, one-man show was supposed to be opened at the Russian Museum in 1929 and it hung in the rooms of the Russian Museum, but it was never open to the public. So 1932 exhibition, which inspired our exhibition here, uh, became the last um, showcase of Filonov's work. He was given by Punin the whole room at the 1932 exhibition, which was the last time when he could exhibit this beautiful work. Um, So uh, for the first time in Russia, After the revolution, uh, avant-garde was um, at the forefront of all the sort of artistic developments, Uh, but uh, soon it had to surrender to more self-explanatory realism. Um, And, uh, of course, if you think of uh, propaganda and the state where Um, art doesn't have any art market and the only commissioner of art is the state of course this sort of form of art uh, was much more popular because it was self explanatory there were no hidden messages like in this beautiful painting by Filonov for example Um, so authorities didn't have to fear of any kind of um, underlining uh, meanings Um, so Avant-garde has been denounced as a national disgrace, and by 1934, art of all kinds had been rendered totally subservient to the purposes of the state. So it was um, to state uh, uh, this way absolutely until Stalin, it, it, was, it would stay this way until Stalin's death and in a slightly milder form until mid-1980s. So until sort of mid-1980s, uh, people hardly knew about avant-garde. So it's um, quite interesting that it started as a um, main kind of artistic production of the new country and then um, in the end was completely betrayed by the new state and um, stayed um, in complete kind of oblivion until mid-1980s so I'll probably finish here um, and I hope you have lots of questions thank you.
0: we do have time for a few questions So, thank you, that was really fascinating you, you finished by saying that avant-garde art um, I don't know if this is the right way to say it but uh, became a sort of non-acceptable thing was mm-hmm. that a gradual process or was there a, a proclamation or I know the end result but mm-hmm. how did it uh,
1: emerge yes thank you it's a good question well it was a gradual process uh, because by the end of 1920s even though uh, different artistic movements could still exist but um uh, Avant-garde art would be shown quite rarely, and even if it was shown, it would be presented as a bad bourgeois art. So, for example, there was an exhibition at the Russian Museum called Art of Imperialism, where a lot of avant-garde artists would be included. So it would be presented under different sort of light. So you could still see it, but it was bad kind of bourgeois imperialist art which um, you were not really supposed to be even looking at. But in April 1932, uh, socialist realism was announced for the first time as um, the only kind of acceptable style um, or method uh, in which all the artists were supposed to work. Um, It first was implied to literature rather than visual art. By 1934, all the artistic movements were closed down and um, replaced by union of artists. So if you wanted to get commissions and sell your work, you had to belong to union of artists. And union of artists dictated socialist realism as the only acceptable method so that was the only uh, method that you could use to paint and of course it wasn't really realism as such it was more of a socialist idealism rather than realism Uh, but everyone was supposed to be happy and uh, life was great and um, workers were the new heroes of paintings so it was subject matter as as, um, as well as style that was controlled by the state.
0: Thank you very much for your talk. I just wanted to know how difficult it was for artists like Kandinsky and Chagall to leave the country. Were they happy? Were the authorities happy
1: to see the back of them? Or, you know, because they they became. Very, very well-known artists in the West, anyway. Absolutely, yes. Uh, Thank you. Yes, they left in 1921, 1922. At the time, uh, authorities were quite happy for everyone to leave. (laughs) And actually, um, well, people from old Russia especially, um, Lenin in 1922 uh, put together this so-called philosopher's steamboat when he forced more than 200 people to get on board of this steamboats and send them off to, well, first Turkey and then abroad. So he was deliberately trying to get rid of a lot of uh, members of pre-revolutionary intelligentsia. But uh, certainly if you wanted to leave, nobody would have stopped you, before the death of Lenin. Uh, then, after 1924, it became increasingly difficult for artists to leave. And when Malevich went to see uh, to show his work in uh, Germany, he had one-man show in Berlin in 1927 he almost couldn't get a visa to go abroad because they feared that he would stay abroad. And indeed he wanted to stay. We now know from his diaries that he was hoping he would stay either in Poland or in Germany. And he brought with him all his earlier works and notebooks, which he left in Germany, but he had to go back to Russia because I think both Poland and Germany feared that the relationship with Soviet Union would be too complicated if they kept Malevich. By then he was quite famous artist, quite important artist. So, it was quite difficult in the end of 1920s already. Um,
0: I, I just wanted to ask about the, um, the Soviet realist painting, perhaps in the later Soviet period. Is there any evidence that um, some of the artists tried to sneak in less uh, acceptable messages, um, religious references and so on, and, um, or, or was it absolutely uh, too dangerous to do that?
1: Um, yes, um, more in the early 30s and late 20s than uh, late 30s. I think by late 30s, it was too dangerous to sneak in any messages. But um, you know the, the painting which became a symbol of our exhibition, the uh, Bolshevik by Kustodiev, of course, it was perceived by authorities as a very positive image of the Bolshevik, this gigantic figure walking all over masses. But um, in the exhibition, we also show a little illustration made by Kustodiev to this satirical magazine in 1905, which, instead of gigantic Bolshevik, has a skeleton walking all over masses, covered in blood, which represents um, death. So when... when um, Uh, 20 years later, Kustodiev was painting Bolshevik in the same way as he presented death earlier. He obviously didn't have any positive message and it was this ginormous Bolshevik who walks all over masses, all over people, and he's about to smash the church. So it was certainly not a positive message, but somehow Bolsheviks mistook it for great propaganda of the revolution. And even the painting which you see in the first room of the exhibition, Lenin and Smolny, this most iconic depiction of Lenin sitting in Smolny, which was headquarters of Communist Party. Again, it was always presented as the most iconic portrait of lenin and uh in 1930s i think it was reproduced in all the textbooks um, 50 million times or something like this. Uh, but it's quite peculiar painting, so when you, if you go back to the exhibition, look at it again, because actually Lenin occupies only a small part of the painting, and most of the painting is occupied by furniture. And there is an empty armchair almost opposite him, as if um, waiting for the next kind of, whoever would take over power. And uh, we also know that Lenin, before he died, he wrote his last will uh, in which he explained that uh, none of the um, Communist Party leaders, none of them were fit enough to take over leadership and so especially Stalin should never be a leader of the Communist Party. Of course his will was announced to be a forgery by Stalin uh, but in this painting it's possible that he is about to write his will and there is a chair just behind his shoulder again empty but as if artist is saying that someone is sitting there looking over his shoulder at what he is about to write. So this painting which nobody even ever questioned it till Probably just last year when uh, art historians in Russia suddenly started to re-evaluate it and uh, try to understand why, if it's portrait of Lenin, it's mainly portrait of furniture rather than Lenin and what it all means. So there were these hidden messages that, unless you know about them, you probably would miss them and think it's great propaganda portrait. Uh, what about such artists as maybe um, Deineka mm-hmm. who was quite happy with socialist realism and he was you know true to himself uh, there was no conflict.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say about him?
1: Yes, um, Dineke uh, was, of course, young generation of artists. He he wasn't this pre-revolutionary artist who had to adopt to the new reality. And um, he always worked uh, in the country with, um, Uh, where only state would commission work. So for him it was absolutely normal to work for the state. Um, He was in the Civil War um, as a soldier, then he came back in 1921, went to study in Pchutumas, and from the beginning he accepted this sort of reality wholeheartedly. And first he worked for magazines um, and and posters. And of course, this sort of immediacy of understanding of posters uh, was then transmitted into his paintings. But I wouldn't uh, call Dinecker to be a socialist, realist artist either because his compositions are full of this very interesting kind of unusual angles and uh, he doesn't quite fit in with this sort of painting either. Uh, Even in the 1930s, he was still experimenting with um, kind of unusual uh, perception, unusual perspectives. Um, so um, I think he was a very experimental artist, even though he, he was always figurative artist, but he was never quite um, mainstream socialist, realist. I think he was very individual, so we can probably call him uh, avant-garde artist for the proletariat, because <laughs> proletariat could understand his work very well, because it was very much straight in your face what you see is what you get
0: sorry this is a very straightforward question I'm just following what you're saying about dinka a lot of these women have bare feet is there a hidden message to that or not well seen
1: the one where they're coming back from the civil war but some of the ones working the factories yeah are... bare feet yes well it's it's interesting because it's sort of still discussed by the historians why there isn't a straightforward answer but um I was just talking to uh, one of the main Dineka scholars, Christina Kaya, who came to our conference a couple of weeks ago from Chicago. And... um She couldn't find it in any of writing, any mention why they have bare feet. And she reckons that they actually did work with bare feet quite often, so it could be as straightforward as this. But uh, we know that with a lot of uh, other avant-garde artists like Gonchirovo, for example, she often painted peasants with bare feet to indicate their connection with earth and that they came from earth. So it could be, but Dineke apparently never really mentions it. So um, Christina thinks that it's because they probably did work.
0: Thank you all so very much for coming, and please join me in thanking Natalia for a wonderful lecture.
1: Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.